0: Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. In this episode, I have a chat with Gil Chang. Gil Chang is a Taiwanese producer who's based in LA, and you might know him from his releases on outlets like Trap Nation, Mr. Suicide Sheep, and Proximity, and he's also known for his best-selling sample packs on Splice. And this episode is jam-packed with actionable advice for producers, so be sure to stick around as there is a ton you can learn about growing yourself as a musician. We start off with Gil Chang's background, looking at how he transitioned from his 9 to 5 into making music full-time. We talk about how he built up multiple revenue streams on the side, which enabled him to quit his job so he could pursue music full-time. We talk about the early stages of the Gil Chang project and how we grew that to the point where it's at now. On the production side, Gil dives deep into his production workflow, talking about his approach to sample selection, which is very unappreciated, his approach to sound design, layering, as well as mixing. We also talk about what Gil's default mastering chain looks like, how to add more organic textures into your music, and how to stay original in genres that are quite repetitive and you all know the ones that I'm talking about. We also discuss the pros and cons of using mixing engineers, and whether or not Gil thinks you should outsource the mixing and mastering for your music. Later on, we talk about Gil's new side project, Bear, Bear and Friends. He talks about building this project from the ground up using everything he's learned from the Gil Chang project, which is a goldmine of advice for anyone who's looking to start a new artist project. Overall, Gil offers loads of valuable advice for aspiring producers, and I can't wait for you all to get into the episode. Now, before we dive into the episode, Gil Chang released a new EP called No Oceans Unturned, a really great body of work that's based off the New York Times bestselling book called The Outlaw Ocean. He was one of over 100 musicians who wrote music based off of this book, one of them teen days we just had on the podcast. It's a really great project, and you should all go check it out. I'll play you a single off of it as we slide into the interview so you can get a feel and taste for his music. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM podcast with Gil Chang. <laughs> to the EDM Podcast here. I'm today joined by Gil, who releases under the name Gil Chang. Gil, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, thanks.
0: So to start, I'd love to learn a bit about your background with music. You can go back as far as you like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and later on music production.
1: Okay, so, you know, growing up, I've I've always had a passion for music. You know, in high school, I would always be listening to music, 90s music. Um, and I, I guess... In college, you know, the transition into EDM, electronic music, It's music has always been a hobby of mine, um, a passion. So, you know, in college, I guess I decided to try to take one of the music production classes that they were offering. And it turned out to, you know, really spark my interest. So, you know, I decided to just get into it as a hobby. And I, I I would think that that's probably... I guess the starting point where I I really started to take that hobby on very seriously, but it was never like, you know, a plan or like a goal to turn it into like a career until, you know, like, um, you know, a bit after college, you know, I was working like a typical nine to five and that's kind of the point, you know, at that point I already started, I was already uh, doing my music on the side as a hobby for like maybe two to three years. And I was, you know, getting a little better at it. I started to get into ghost producing for people. I started to, you know, get a little more fans on SoundCloud back in the day. Um, And I started selling samples as well. And it it got to a point where I realized that I was actually generating more revenue. I was making a little more money than I was at my actual nine to five. Mm -hmm. So that's when I kind of said to myself, okay, you know, Maybe I can make this a sustainable thing for my lifestyle. I might as well just quit my nine to five and just try to work on my music full time. And ever since then, I guess that's, that's, I guess it's kind of just like a full hustle that I've been doing with my music ever since then.
0: So going back to that class that you took in college, so you said you took a music production class. What did you kind of do to grow your production skills outside of that? Like you said, you were working your nine to five. I'm kind of curious what that looked like for you just to get more into it. Cause in general, you know, extra production courses at universities aren't normally as strong and as technical as most people would want. So curious kind of on that end to hear your thoughts.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, that class was actually just like an intro class and it wasn't even like within the doll that I'm using right now. It was, it was actually a class for pro tools. You know, Pro Tools, like, you know, you use it more for like live organic music, use it more for vocals and stuff like that. Um, Not Definitely not geared towards electronic stuff. But, uh, you know, learning Pro Tools in that class, definitely, it was kind of like a gateway thing for me to really understand how music mixing works, how how music recording works and stuff like that. So it was definitely a great intro class. And it got me really interested in how electronic music was made, you know, after that class. And I guess the way I kind of taught myself after that class was just, you know, Phil, it was just a bunch of like YouTube tutorials and a bunch of just reading stuff about mixing online, reading stuff about mastering, reading stuff about sample selection there, you know, there's like so many resources online for you to really understand and understand how to like mix properly, understand how to make a track properly. Um, and, you know, when I first started, the the learning the learning curve was definitely very steep. I think given, you know, relative to other things that you learn, I feel like music production is definitely one of the steeper learning curves that you'll meet. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people can't really, a lot of starting producers can't really handle. They, they start and they realize how un- unobtainable that um, the goal they want to reach would be, you know, to yeah. like jot your ideas down onto your doll and to like finalize it as a, or realize it as a full track. And, you know, I had a lot of friends back then who started at the same time that I did, um, you know, just learning about music production and they definitely just like their, their passion and their interest and their like inspiration, like really died out because they just felt like it was too hard to bridge the gap between the technical aspect of music production and you know, actually getting to the point where you're actually making a full track and you're getting your ideas down.
0: Yeah, I always describe that as having a passion for music and having a passion for making music. I think those are two very different ideas. And in order to get to the point where you want to with your music, you to an extent have to have a passion for making music. And do you feel like that's something that you've always had? I feel like we haven't really talked about that in this podcast. So I'm curious, like, was that in you right away, we were like, I'm going to learn Pro Tools and I'm going to figure out how to mix and master and hear so that I can produce better.
1: I think that's a very good point, actually. Um, and I, I guess I never really thought about that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's really it's really good that I actually bring that up because it's making me think about that in a mm-hmm. different way. Um, I think I definitely have like a specific passion for music making or music, uh, just like the, the things that you got to do to make music. Uh, it's always been something that I thought about even when I was listening to music growing up. I would think to myself, you know, how is this recorded? Uh, why, would, why is this electric guitar sound so distorted? Um, and obviously some of it is like external hardware, you know, live, yeah. live stuff. But a lot of it is also in post-production as well within, within the box and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, it definitely I definitely had a spark for music production in general. And I think that's what really helped me get to the point that I am right now as As well as having a general genuine passion for music,
0: yeah, I am definitely the same way. where well, I feel like I love the technical side of production. It's not necessary to kind of get to where you want to go, but I feel like it's so much easier when you crave the knowledge that's necessary to get your productions and mixes to the place that you want to have a passion for making the music, not just the like end result and where that might take you.
1: yeah, I definitely agree.
0: so going back to you said that you started kind of making a lot more money on the side when you were working that nine to five, I'm kind of curious what that transition looked like when you finally decided, okay, I'm going to quit my nine to five and I'm going to go headfirst into pursuing music full time. I think there's a lot of people that would like to be in that situation. So I'm kind of curious what your headspace was like kind of going before going into and after that.
1: Well, it was definitely, it was definitely like a kind of scary jump because I I wasn't ever going to be sure that I was going to make enough money with my music. Um, It was just that, during that period, you know, I was like, you know, in the, in a, in a span of like maybe one or two months, I realized that, you know, my monthly income from just my music was actually pretty significantly more than my actual job. So I guess my headspace was, was, you know, is that, you know, I I could maybe just try to do this full time and see where it takes me. And I tried, you know, when I first quit my job, I try to be very disciplined about my work schedule. Um, I think that was one of the main challenges Mm -hmm. that I had was to be, be disciplined about when I work and when I don't work and the things that I really need to pay attention to um, maximizing my efficiency. I, when I first started um, and even now I kind of just stick to like a, I try to, I try to stick to a pretty uh, strict schedule of trying to get getting, like around Mm -hmm. eight hours of work in. And, you know, that, that entails a lot of things for me that entails like a few hours of just like fiddling around with new, new tracks, getting some new ideas down. Some of that time goes into making the cover art for all my releases, uh, doing the uh, logistics, the coordinating from releases, responding to emails. Uh, Some of that time definitely goes into making, making uh, samples. Uh, a, a big, a very significant uh, portion of the money I make actually goes into sample making as well. So that was something that I needed to give a yeah. lot of attention to as well. So on that note, you said
0: that you were bringing in a lot of income and sample packs were kind of the main driving force. Talk more about what you were doing to be able to generate that revenue from sample packs. I think obviously everybody knows Splice, but you were doing more beyond that. So I'm curious, kind of what were those streams of revenue? You at that point and what were you doing specifically with the sample packs? Because I personally had a lot of success with it. And I think it's good for people to know all the different avenues that you can use to monetize off of that.
1: Well, when I uh when I first had the idea to sell my samples, it was because you know I saw my fan base grow on SoundCloud, and you know, I, I was getting a little more attention than I than I was, you know, when I first started. I noticed the increase of fan base. So I thought to myself, you know, I could sell my samples and promote it on SoundCloud. And that was really my first avenue of selling samples. I would basically make a sample pack. I would create a demo track for that sample pack and then I would post it on my SoundCloud and try to direct uh, you know, producers yeah. or anyone who was interested to to buy the sample pack from my SoundCloud. Um and obviously I didn't actually make that many sales from that, uh, but definitely that was yeah. Just how I started. And a little later, a little later, um, you know, I, I got I got some offers from Cymatics. You know how Cymatics, uh the I'm sure you know Cymatics. Um, they they reached out to me. They they ran a campaign with me with this, uh they basically got a lot of artists mm-hmm. to create free sample packs. And it was kind of just like a uh like a follow yeah. for sample pack kind of deal with the download gate. Um, you know, that definitely got my name out there a little more in terms of sample packs <laughs> so that definitely helped and you know a little later is when splice came came into the picture and splice reached out to me uh via email and, and they were like you know we like your packs um have you heard of our platform if you want we could uh, offer you a, uh, you know this deal or that deal for for you to for us to host your sample packs in splice and from then on really it was just all yeah most of my revenue was made from via splice Uh, Just getting my packs on Splice, uh, doing exclusives with them so that, you know, only they have my packs and getting advances and stuff like that from them.
0: Were you doing anything outside of the sample packs to generate revenue at that point? Or was that pretty much like where the bulk was coming from?
1: I was also doing a lot of ghost producing at the same time. And that definitely was another huge factor in why I was able to bring so much money in when I first decided to make that transition. Ghost producing uh, wasn't, you know, like it was a very new concept to me back then. Um, I kind of looked into it, but in my head, I kind of thought like it was kind of weird, you know, like, you know, you never really want to sell your own sound or your craft to another person. And you can't really put like a right price on that either. But, you know, I kind of just justified it to myself that, you know, at the end of the day, I still need to be making money. Yeah. So Yeah. So I kind of went that direction. And that definitely added to how much I was making in a very significant way.
0: Was that a process that you enjoyed producing for other people or got out quickly because you didn't like it as much?
1: Um I definitely wouldn't say that I enjoyed it. Um I definitely enjoyed the money that it that came with it. But in terms of actually enjoying the process, I always felt like it was you know, not a very creative process. I wouldn't. Yeah. What would, you know, you know, it, it's weird because when you when you have a mindset and you're creating your own track, you know, you want to give it your all. You wanna you wanna just make it as you as possible. Give it your own style, your own uniqueness, and basically give it a hundred percent. But you know, like if you get into the mindset that you're creating this track for another person, it kind of just becomes like a business transaction. Yeah. yeah. You're just making it. Just it good enough for them to be like, okay, this is ready. This is good. Um, I'll get you paid. And I definitely didn't enjoy that.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a different approach. And I think a lot of people yeah. that haven't been in that space think, oh, that's so awesome. You're getting paid to make music. But no, it's mm-hmm. not the exact style that you want which means you're making something that isn't really what you want, which is not what most people want for music. Exactly. And then also you're on the clock and creativity and is this weird thing where when I've done the sample pack work, if I don't make something that I can use for two hours, it's almost like I don't get paid for those two hours. And I'm like thinking about everything exactly. like, well, if I can't get this idea done in four hours, I'm making only X amount of money per hour, which is less than minimum wage. Like there's this like weird mentality to it. Some people do extremely well with that. And I think some people can like check in, check out, put in the work that they need to for sample packs or ghost production. But there's also, you know, aside from the ethical aspect of ghost production, even just like personally, it's not necessarily the most inviting and warming
1: experience in my experience. And it seems like for you too. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's definitely not a rewarding experience. Um, It's definitely just something that I tell myself that I need to be doing to make ends meet, uh, to, to generate the income level that I would want to be at.
0: Awesome. So now that we've covered a bit about your background, let's dive into some production. First thing I want to ask you is, you step into the DAW, you've got MTDAW template. Kind of what is your workflow for starting and developing ideas?
1: Well, for starters, I work in FL Studios. Okay. Um, When I first started, uh, I I kind of A-B tested like uh, Ableton, FL Studios. I even did uh, Reactor. I forgot what that that one's called for a bit. Um, I just wanted to see which doll had the best workflow for me and ultimately i i decided on fl studios just because i felt like the ui was a little more self-explanatory yeah. for my for my workflow i guess oh so you know i have my doll open i guess the first step for me really is a chord progression i usually start with a chord progression and i kind of have a melody on top afterwards um struct- structurally speaking though within the structure of a song i usually make the drop section first, and then I base everything else around that drop section, you know, the verses, the the build up, the intro.
0: So I'm curious, you've got such kind of like a wide range of music that you produce from more feature-based and trap leading stuff to some more of your like lo-fi music that you release. How do you decide even like what direction to take your project at the start? Because I think a lot of people have different influences and kind of step up to this blank slate and get creative block, and they get stopped because they don't know what style they want to make or they're, you know, unsure how to meld these two things. So how do you kind of approach that having a direction at the start?
1: Well, usually when I when I start a track, I kind of already have in mind um, a very loose guideline of what I want the track to sound like. And I guess the guideline would be just a genre that I'm producing in. You know, like if I start a track, I I would say to myself, you know, this track's gonna probably sound, you know, kind of future bassy. It's gonna sound kind of, you know, dance pop, future bass, uh, what you would expect within those genres. But obviously, you know, I don't want to be limited to just the like construct of what makes yeah. a genre, because I feel like that definitely kills creativity. So, you know, I, I try to tell myself or I try to produce within those guidelines, but at the same time, I'm still trying to break barriers within those genres, within, within those constructs to to maybe, you know, just innovate a little more with, with my music. So that's 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 something I'm, that I'm always trying to do. But I, I definitely do jump into tracks with, you know, a, a loose guideline of what I want the track to sound like. So, you know, like, for instance, my Lo-Fi album, when I was creating that, You know, I was basically, you know, every time I started, I started a new project, a new song, I would just tell myself, you know, I I want this to sound kind of lo-fi. I want this to sound, um, you know, kind of like broken beats, you know, and go from there. But, you know, sometimes it just kind of ends up sounding a little different too, like has all these styles like fused in as well. (laughs) But that's generally my approach to starting new projects.
0: I love that idea in terms of like a loose guideline, because for me, it helps to have at least something to start with. I'm not the kind of person that can just like, you know, open up serum and just keep moving things around and just hope that inspiration strikes, but having something to start, but then also not being afraid to move away from that so that you can have more room for innovation and creativity. I think that's crucial.
1: No, definitely. Yeah. I think that's a great philosophy to have. And just like you said, um, I feel like most people, it would be hard to like get into a track without any sort of structure or guideline, you know, and I feel like that's, that's where genre is helpful because, you know, if you say future base, if you say trap, you, you kind of know what to expect. So I think it's super helpful to just kind of tell yourself that's the direction I'm going, but that's not necessarily the direction that I'm going to stay at or end up with. Kind of going back on something you
0: said earlier, this idea of innovation, even within a particular genre, like let's just say you're saying, I'm going to produce like a 150 BPM future based track, but I'm going to kind of try to do something new and creative with it. This is going to be kind of a hard question to answer, but what do you do for your approach to kind of allow room for that creativity? Because I think there's a lot of people that really like, let's just say future based, one of the most popular genres right now, but struggle to create anything too innovative or unique. And listening to any of your future-based songs, I can tell there's a personal, unique touch on what's already a pretty standard style. So kind of curious what your mindset is going into that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a pretty loaded question. Um, and it has a lot of answers to it. Um, I guess how I would answer that is, you know, um, it's like you said, future base as a genre is pretty saturated at this point. There are too many artists and producers trying to make, trying to produce within that genre. You know, a lot of like other older EDM artists are yeah. trying to produce in that genre as well. And it's just become like this whole thing now. Um, so, you know, when you say future based, you know, people tend to know what you expect. I think the, the, the process that I go through when I'm making my tracks and I want my tracks to turn out to be future based, but also different, I guess for me, Sample selection would be the most crucial thing, but, you know, I wouldn't say that's a whole thing, but I'll go into sample selection first, you know, for, for sample selection, I always try, you know, when I'm, when I'm browsing for samples and I'm, you know, going through all my samples in my library, going through splice, I tend to, you know, I feel like that's a very important process that a lot of producers kind of, or beginning producers, a lot of beginning producers kind of gloss over. Um, and you know i for me i kind of just go through my library i go to splice and i and i i try to pick samples that just sound crazy and like different and like just unconventional yeah. to begin with and and i feel like if you do that you know like if you just carefully pick out your samples um you know it's gonna it's gonna affect your your overall song and how it turns out in the end and on top of that, I I usually just try to avoid a lot of sounds yeah. that I feel like are overused in the current trends. I, I try to you know like uh, to to phrase it in a more I, I guess playful way. You know like when I'm going through my library in Splice and I and I and I like click these samples and they start sounding like really cheesy to me. It's like you know that's when I know like I'm not going to be using that sound in my track. I tend to lean towards more organic sounds. So sounds that just doesn't sound too synthesized, and I think most of my fan base can agree that you know it's like you know one of my most popular songs, "Story." You know, you know it has like an electronic feel to it, but you know the drop has that like really uh airy trumpet, yeah. saxophone kind of sound to it, and it, you know it's obviously there's a lot going on with that saxophone trump, trumpet sound in post, uh, you know, with within my doll, but you know at the at the end of the day, it's still a very organic sound. And I think that's definitely what my fan base likes about that song and how I produce my songs in general. It's that organic element to it. Kind of on that
0: note, is there anything outside of sample selection that you feel helps you get more of an organic sound out of what is a song that you're producing in your DAW?
1: Other than, I guess, outside of sample selection, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's really hard to put, put a finger on exactly what you need to be doing to be different yeah. to innovate in a very saturated market. Um and I guess another thing I would say to that effect is basically just something I would do is just you know like I would I would go online I would learn all these techniques within YouTube tutorials and just like the conventional way of doing things, you know, like you sh- yeah, you know there are there are like rules in music production where you should never do, you know, for instance like you should never put reverb on your low end, you know, your bass, because that'll just make your mix sound all muddy, and things like that. You know, there are there are stuff that you know, just like you you shouldn't do that. But I feel like sometimes you know, you could try to break those rules, and if it works, then it works, you know. And if 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 your end your if your ending mix, your final mix doesn't sound too bad, you know, and your ears are trained enough to to to, to know what sounds good and bad. Um, I feel like that's definitely a very good way to break down like these these constructs that the future base has, you know, and a good way to really innovate and be different to just like challenge the status quo and be like, okay, even though everyone knows that we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be putting reverb on on, on the low end. Maybe I'll try to put a teeny bit on and it'll make everything sound kind of weird, but different. Yeah,
0: I love that. And I think what you mentioned in terms of sample selection is kind of like a micro version of that yeah we were like hey i'm not gonna use the same sounds that everyone's using even though i know they work like the crane bamboo snare everybody knows that works yeah. but like everyone's <laughs> downloaded it too so like don't download that like push yourself to go a little bit further down the list on the splice website find something that's a little bit different with sample selection push yourself to find something that's unique so that you can have a better more creative starting point point. and i think rolling that into what you were saying Every part of the production process kind of falls into that when it comes to sound design, mixing, post-processing. Just because it works for somebody else doesn't mean you should copy that exact same workflow. You can learn from it, but finding more avenues where you can be like, hey, I'm going to try something a bit different and not really know where I'm going in order to allow yourself some room for creativity. I think that's a really good idea.
1: Exactly. And, and to add on to what you were saying um, and to what I was saying as well, you know, that crane bamboo that you're talking, uh, that current <laughs> crane bamboo snare that you're talking about, Yeah, you know, it's like, I wouldn't necessarily avoid downloading that, but if I did download that and I did use that in a track, I would make sure that the final product yeah. of my mix, like no one could tell that it was actually the crane bamboo snare. Like it would just be completely different, you know? And that's, I feel like that's something that, um, I think that's a good philosophy to have that, you know, you have, maybe, maybe you have a sample that's overused, but you know, if, if you have the ability to just manipulate it or add effects to it in a way that sounds like a complete new sound, you know, that's definitely innovating as well for me.
0: I mean, it's a basic idea, but get creative with what you have. I think a lot of people forget that and they just question themselves and they don't know where to go and they're uncomfortable with that, but nobody knows where to go, but you have the tools, you got to ride with it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So another aspect of production that I really want to talk about is your approach to mixing. I think you produce such a wide range of genres and really no matter what I'm listening to, your mixes sound really tight and full. So do you have a general workflow when it comes to mixing? Do you mix on the go? Do you do a big mix at the end? Kind of talk about what your process is like for that.
1: So when, I'm, when I first, like, when I first you know jump into a track, I'm more focused on like, the creative aspects of the track, you know, uh, how the drop is going to sound, how my saws are going to sound, the layers that I'm going to have, you know, the structure of the song, you know, what kind of build I'm going to have, what kind of risers I'm going to have. I just kind of have like a session where I put yeah. all those things together and not really worry about how it's going to be mixed. Obviously, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be like doing very like rudimental stuff. Like yeah. I'm going to be adjusting the volumes to what I think they might be at um, and kind of doing some like, intro EQ to my, my songs and stuff. But, you know, I don't, I don't really worry about that stuff when I'm first just doing my creative aspect of the track, because, you know, I feel like, I guess for some people mixing and creating at the same time works for them. But for me, I just kind of just focus on the creative aspect first. And once I have like a full track down, I'm happy with how things are sounding. Um, I'm happy with where I went creatively with them. Um, That's when I kind of just shift into like the mixing mode and the mixing and mastering. I kind of do that both simultaneously because, you know, when I'm mixing, I I have, I have like a master like effects rack where I, where I use that effects rack for every single one of my tracks. So I know exactly what's going to be happening after I put my master effects rack on it. So when I'm mixing, I kind of just cater towards that as well. And basically that process actually takes a little longer than this sometimes than like, uh, than actually creating a track yeah. itself, which I guess, I don't know if that's common or not. Um, I guess some people would say that maybe the creative aspect might take a little longer, but for me, usually mixing and mastering takes a little longer for me.
0: Yeah. I think that's like a really under talked about process when it comes to like bedroom producers that have kind of like a master bus that they work into. It's- Really common, and it's also common to kind of like mix into that and see where your mix is lying and even if you're going to send it off to a mastering engineer, it just kind of helps to know the way that your mix is hitting into a you know really high quality smart line of uh, mastering plugins that you have kind of wrapping up your mix
1: yeah, I mean, to add on to that with what you were saying, you know like um when I first uh started mixing and mastering my tracks um I definitely thought about you know just sending it off to like engineers and stuff, mastering engineers or paying people to do that. And you know, every time I did that when I first started out, yeah. I with the result that came back was definitely not something that I liked. And I started to realize that it's it's because, you know, like I I just feel like they didn't really have it's not that they they didn't have mm-hmm. like it was because I, I was mixing my tracks in a way that just wasn't very conventional. And I didn't feel like they just, they didn't really understand what I was doing and they just did the best they could with my mix, but it just, it just ended up sounding like nothing like I actually envisioned. So that's when I started to really take, uh, I guess, mastering into my own hands and try to, you know, have like a mastering bus that's very consistent throughout my tracks and try to just mix. Uh, the only thing that really changes for my workflow is the mixing aspect. I would just mix everything um, and try to cater towards my mastering bus. And that has definitely really worked for me in terms of keeping my tracks and my releases very consistent in terms of volume, in terms of uh, punchiness and things like that. That's a really good point in
0: terms of the mixing and mastering engineer is like a really unappreciated aspect where it's difficult, not necessarily difficult, but it's challenging to find a mixing engineer that has the same vision for your music as you do. And I think, especially for producers, we have like such control over our music and it makes sense where we have our hands on, on every aspect versus more of like a traditional rock band that just records it and sends it off to engineers. So it's really important and kind of difficult in your experience to find a mixing engineer whose vision for your track is the exact same as yours. And I think that kind of makes sense where you're like, you know what, if I want this done right, the way that I want it, it makes sense to do what I need to, to figure out how to get my mixes and my masters hitting the way that I want.
1: Oh yeah, no, I definitely, uh, I definitely think that's very important. Um, And I think it could work, you know, like if, if you, you, if you had like a mixing person, a mixing engineer and a mastering engineer along, along with you, like in the same studio, like from the beginning of the track to the end, I'm sure that would work. You know, I'm sure like, you know, if, if he's in the same room with you, you could tell him like, Hey, you know, this, I, I want it to sound this way. Yeah. I want, I want my kicks and snares to sound this way. And I, I think, you know, a lot of like, I guess, bigger artists and producers, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's their workflow. Um, but you know, I guess for, I guess a smaller size, like bedroom producer, um, that's definitely not something that you could yeah. really achieve. Um, most people, they just make their track and they, they like, you know, by themselves and they send it off to produce, uh, to, uh, mixing engineers and they send it off to mastering studios and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously they're always unsatisfied with yeah. the results. And, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's like you said, that's the biggest issue because they don't know what your original vision was. They, it was, it, that's the disconnect. So
0: it's always fun to hear what different producers put on their mastering chain. So I'm curious, what types of plugins and tools
1: are you using consistently on that master bus? So I actually exclusively use, um, ozone, isotope. Izo- yeah. And I have the newest version of that. So that's basically the only thing I, I really have on in, in my uh, master bus. Obviously I have, I have like a preset that I use and that, that I save yeah. on isotope. And that's the preset that I made myself. And I would just use, put that on all of my tracks. But you know, to touch, to touch upon that, um, there's, there's like another plugin that I guess really made a big difference for me uh, when I was first starting out as, as like a beginning producer, beginner producer. And it's, it's basically uh transient processors uh, or transient masters yeah. and stuff like that. That's something that I guess it was kind of like an aha moment for me um, when I was mixing my tracks in the beginning, uh, when I first couldn't really make, uh, make the jump to like having like you know, just like a track that sounded creatively cool, but not mixed well to like a a more professional and tight sounding track. Um, And basically when I started looking into transient transient processors and transient masters, that's when it really started making sense to me, um, how things could sound so punchy, how things could sound so tight. Um, And that made a huge difference for me in terms of mixing and mastering because you know, like I said, I would do both kind of at the same time, you know, I would have the isotope on my master chain on my master bus, but, you know, everywhere else I would have these different buses for my drum racks, for my, uh, drop for my verses and stuff. And I would put a lot of, uh, you know, transient masters on those just to, you know, tighten up the mix and stuff like that. And, you know, it might be really basic stuff, but, when I was first starting out, that's yeah. something that I never really utilized and never really understood or took the time to understand. Um, and once I did, it was just like it just made the like a huge difference for me, you know, night and day. So, in my experience,
0: my favorite way to do that is with a multi-band transient shaper, like the Waves um, TransX plugin, where you can just kind of like zero in on the mid highs where a lot of that punch comes from for kicks and snares and claps and sense and whatnot. So was that the approach that you use or did you
1: use just like single band transient shapers? I usually use single band transient shapers. Uh, what, one of my favorite ones to use is the one from Native Instruments, yeah. uh, the transient master. Um, but I have, uh, sometimes, you know, I would do, I do, I would do multi-band transient shapers as well, but usually I just stick with my uh, transient master just because I'm pretty familiar with how it works.
0: I feel like those are also easy to to like dial in the quote unquote dynamic settings that you want because they're a lot more straightforward than trying to get the exact settings with a compressor on your master bus. Like it's definitely good to know how to use a compressor there, but I feel like you have less room to mess things up when you're using a transient shaper on your master, especially for like an intermediate producer that can't necessarily hear everything that's going on. It's almost like risk prevention. I'm just going to use a transient shaper. I know I've got two knobs. One says attack, one says sustain. It's
1: way more straightforward and harder to mess things up. No, I mean, I definitely agree, you know, when I, and I think that touches upon, uh, you know, something that I definitely struggled with, uh, when I first started out, it's like you said, you know, some, some plugins, some effects, they have a lot of settings. They have, you know, like all these things that you can go in depth with. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it also, it's also not that good because, it's like you said, you have so much more room for error. You have so much more room to like boost things, to cut things. And, you know, for me at least, sometimes it was just easy. It was just an easier approach to just pick out a few tools, you know, transient master things that I could understand fully and just try to use those tools to like, you know, their maximum, you know, potential. And, you know, like, uh, you know, like also to touch upon that as well, um, when I first started, I thought that I needed all these fancy plugins to, to make my mix sound cool, to make my mix sound full and professional. Um, and I guess a turning point in that mindset was is really that all I, you know all I needed was, was like the generic plugins that came with FL Studios to, to really make my tracks sound good. I just needed to really understand how to utilize them. I think that's a valuable lesson. And the way that I always kind of approach that topic,
0: because we do get asked that a lot, where it's like third-party plugins are helpful, but they're by no means necessary. Like the reason your mixes aren't where you want them to be or your productions aren't where you want them to be isn't because you don't have the right plugins. Those things help, but don't think that's the reason that your music isn't where you want it to
1: be. Exactly. And, you know, but that's not to like discount third-party plugins because, you know, there are some third-party plugins that, you know, do amazing things. But I just think... Uh, You know, I feel like some people, some producers who start out, they like just go into like this bunny hole of trying to find all these, like trying to buy all these, all these plugins, you know, they're like, you know, if I get this, it's going to make my music sound next level, things like that. And I just feel like that's definitely not the right mindset because you have, are you already like FL studios or Ableton, they already give you all the tools you'll ever need to make a track sound professional.
0: Sounds like you were like me, like you believed the other side at some point earlier on in your production career where you thought you needed the UAD stuff or the wave stuff or the entire sound toy <laughs> yeah. stuff. And like, I use that all now yeah. and I love it all, but I could absolutely go without it. Exactly. So I kind of want to go back on more of your early on production process, in particular sound design. I'm just curious what your general approach is there. Are you using synths or using samplers? What does your workflow look like for that?
1: So um, I feel like my workflow is pretty uh, standard. Uh, I would use most of the standard plugins right now that are pretty industry standard. Yeah. Um, I said standard so many times. Okay, so basically, I, I would use Serum for my synths. You know, I would use Massive still. You know, I know Massive's not that common anymore, but I still use Massive sometimes. I still use silent. Um and I basically use that use those three plugins exclusively for most of my electronic synthesized yeah. sounds. Um, and as for, uh my other sounds in terms of sound design, um, I would just try to, and I, going back to sample selection again, I would always just try to find organic samples that I can manipulate in a very interesting way. And I try to just fuse those two elements yeah. together, you know, kind of have the best of both worlds, electronic and organic going on at the same time. And I feel like that's definitely, um, a little more of a fresh approach to just, you know, like making EDM in general, you know? So when you say manipulating
0: samples in an interesting way, everyone kind of approaches that differently. And I'm curious, just because I'm not in FL, what does that normally look like for you, just to try to get something more out of a sampled loop or a one-shot that you've got?
1: Well, that uh, specifically, I guess that would mean... In in FL studios, I I guess a good way to explain this would be to maybe make an example. So, you know, for my track story, um, the trumpet sound and the drop in the chorus section... um, Basically what I did there was I did a lot of uh, cutting with the original sample. The original sample was basically a a very flat sounding uh, trumpet loop that I got from one of my friends. And I just cut that up and like I rearranged things in a very, you know, obviously in a very weird way. Um, But what I did with my effects there to manipulate the sound was basically I had like four EQs, uh like just the native EQ plugins on MIFL Studios. And you know, sometimes you wouldn't think about it. Like most people, they use EQ just to clean up your mix. But EQ, if you EQ a sound drastically enough, you know, like be super like dramatic about yeah. your cuts and your boosting, you can really kind of change the quality of a sound pretty dramatically. And that's something, I feel like that's something that most people don't uh, try to stay away from because, you know, when you're EQing, most people would just use it to cut, you know, uh, cut, cut out some fat within their mix and stuff like that. But I try to use EQ to just try to change mm-hmm. the quality of the sound altogether. Um, and on top of that, I usually try to play around with the reverb of the sound as well. And I feel like that's also something yeah. that a lot of people underutilize. Uh, most people, they just try to tweak around with the wetness and echo, echo, echo yeah. vibes of the reverb. But I think if you turn the knobs of the wetness and also uh, I forgot the technical term for it. But if you try to be drastic about the way you approach your reverb, you can end up with a completely like unique and different sound as well. And that's that's usually my approach when I'm trying to make a sound sound a little different.
0: I love those. I feel like just to kind of like sum up what you said, using EQ as a creative tool, not -hmm. just a mixing tool to like cut off the lows or boost the highs a little bit, but in order to get a more unique sound out of it. And then also with reverb using that as a sound design tool, not just Mm -hmm. to make your mix bigger and wetter and to put things in a space, but to get a more interesting character and tone out of it. I love that. So one thing that I want to go back on is you were talking about saws earlier as part of your workflow, I'm curious if you have any advice. Let's just say you're making a future-based track that's going to have super saws in it. What the hell do you do to make them more interesting and not just sound like a normal super saw coming out of serum? And I think if you want an example, I think um, one of the tracks in the latest EP, Storming the Thunder, I felt like is exactly what I'm talking about there. So you could talk about that as an example if you want.
1: Okay, well, Storming the Thunder. uh, Yeah, I mean, that. I I feel like that track, uh, my, my approach to saws is pretty much the same for most tracks. So I could just talk about that. Um, one thing that I do with my saws is, uh, basically I, I would always, and I'm pretty sure this is pretty standard, but I was, I would always start with, um, a very generic body sound of the saw. So, you know, that, that, that either be like a square, square wave or a sine wave. And that kind of provides me with, with, you know, the full body of the saw in general, and where what I what I where I get creative with this is, is basically the bass and also the uh yeah. the top layer of the saw. And I feel like that's where you really need to like be creative to make your saw sound a little different. And I usually just try to, you know, pick out the just, just try to pick out the most unique sounds I can with the bass and also with the top layer of the melody. And, you know, I just, I, I kind of just, you know, it's a lot of experimentation. I just kind of pick random sounds and I just hope for the best sometimes, you know, and sometimes it works out and I feel like, you know, a lot of producers will know what I'm talking about when I say this, you know, it's everything you, you, sometimes you don't really know what you're doing, but totally, you're just experimenting and it just comes Sometimes it just works out, you know? So that's definitely my philosophy in making my solves, um, but, you know, if I, if I wanted to go into like a technique that I use, maybe, um, it would be, I guess I, I feel like I have a pretty unique approach to how I do my, uh, saws okay. in terms of, uh, in terms of the beat and the timing, um, you know, and also the side chain and, you know, instead of, I'm not sure if a lot of other producers do this, but for me, I kind of just, uh. I literally instead of like maybe putting like a volume sidechain or compression sidechain on my saws and you know attach and connect that to my kick or my snare I try to just uh, you know manually draw out the automation of, of yeah. all my tracks uh, all my sorry all my sounds in my saws um, in the volume automation of it, I just draw out. So, you know, if I do that, I have like complete control over when it stops, when there's going to be a break, how much it's pumping. Because sometimes like if you're side chaining a kick to a saw, the pumping might sound a little different because your kick yeah. is a little more th- punchier or a little, it's a little more tight. Um, and I just feel like for me to manually draw it out, it takes a lot more time, but it gives me so much more control over how my saws end up sounding. I think that's great
0: advice, especially because I think a lot of people, especially in future base, just struggle to find what those right sidechain settings are. Mm-hmm, exactly, Is like that they're like, yeah. how do I sidechain like a Letium or mm-hmm. anything like that in Google? So it's like nice if you like can't get what you want with a sidechain compressor or with a volume shaper like an LFO tool just like a kill switch it, grab a utility, automate the gain and get what you want with that. It takes
1: longer, but you get exactly the sound that you want. Yeah. And like your project starts to look really crazy, but like it it definitely gives you so much more control over how your sounds sound in the end.
0: I'm afraid to ask this question, but do you do that on like a send bus or do you do that individually for different channels? Cause I I do that
1: (laughs) deep with that. I do that for like, sometimes I, I would go pretty deep. I just do that for like individual channels. I don't feel like you'd release any music (laughs) if
0: you did that. On a related note, um, one thing, just looking at your SoundCloud and Spotify, you release so much freaking music, way more than pretty much any artist that I can think of. So I'm curious, do you feel like there's any secrets or tricks that help you to remain the amount of consistency that you have with releases? Anything that you can kind of give on that? Well,
1: um, I guess what I would say to that is, you know, I kind of tell myself that I I, I always just need to try to keep the momentum up. And I cry, I I tell myself, you know, loosely that I want to be releasing music at least once a month. And I feel like, you know, that's just something that I, 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 I tell myself pretty seriously. So I, it kind of motivates me to just put out or create new music or try to plan like four to five releases in the next two to three months. And like, whenever I'm getting towards, whenever, whenever I'm getting towards the point where like, I, I don't have, I'm not. I don't have yeah. anything scheduled. I, I, I kind of start panicking, you know, and I, I kind of just want to, I, I kind of just put myself in the mode of creating again. And I, and I reach out to like a lot of vocalists and I, I'm always just trying to keep up the momentum and trying to give myself pressure to never have like a, a period of time where you're just not releasing music because I feel like that's very detrimental to the momentum of streams yeah. on Spotify. Like I've noticed that like some artists, they just are producers. They just like take like, you know, like a three months gap where they don't release anything. And you can really see that it really affects their stats and their streams and their momentum.
0: Yeah. I just had a podcast with, um, on planets and he was talking about that where he took a two year period from releasing and he was like, I get it. I'm going to have to spend another six months to a year to get back to the point of where I was with music. Yeah. So I think it's like, if you can keep that consistency, that's awesome. I'm kind of curious, like you seem like you have always had this very like job-like mentality with music, but you haven't, you know, at least outwardly seems like you've struggled to maintain consistency and to like get that creative output that you need in order to keep your, um, you know, kind of career and project moving. Is that true that you haven't really struggled with that? Or is that something that you've dealt with more
1: issues? Well, um, I definitely struggled with that in the beginning for sure. Um, along with a lot of other struggles, um, I guess to touch upon that, you know, when I when I first started, it was very hard for me to yeah. to understand how I should be releasing music, whether it should be in an independent release or if I should be releasing music with labels and things like that. Obviously, there were challenges with both. You know, if I, if I wanted a label to release my music, then, you know, I would have to send them the demo and I would have them to actually have them actually agree to release my music. And, you know, totally, that, that's definitely not easy when you're first starting out. Um, you can't imagine how many like rejection emails that I, uh, that I got like in a day when I first started out. And, you know, I guess if you just keep at it, you kind of move past that stage uh, and you always, um, where am I going with this? But, well, once I feel like once I my music kind of took off in terms of uh, my following and my fan base, I definitely didn't have that much of a struggle to to see it as a business and to to try to try to you know make money from it. That def- that transition definitely wasn't hard for me. I guess the hardest part, the struggle for me, was definitely starting out and building that fan base to begin with. Totally, that makes sense.
0: I think it's like good to have those affirmations early on, I think it's difficult when you're not making any traction to have that confidence in yourself. But as soon as you start to get those first things that say, Hey, you belong here, you're a professional, it becomes a lot easier to build off of that and develop that confidence, which generally speaking makes it easier to put in the work you need. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always interesting to hear, I'm curious if outside of the Gil Chang project, you've got anything else that you do in the music industry, whether it's side projects, producing for other people, we mentioned the sample packs already, but anything else kind of outside of that, that you work
1: on in the music space? So recently I actually started a side project um, and it's definitely something that kind of reignited my, I guess, passion for music production and also releasing music. Um, It's definitely very exciting for me. Um, And I'll I'll go into a little bit first, but, you know, I want to go into like the backstory of why I would even start a side project. You know, when I, you know, when I was first starting out my guild chain project, I was definitely fumbling with a lot of things. Uh, I, I made a lot of rookie mistakes. I ended up releasing tracks on Spotify that I probably wasn't a hundred percent happy with. I didn't know how to brand my project consistently And I was just basically learning and just like taking like steps without really knowing if it was actually effective or not. So, you know, the side project for me that I started maybe a month ago, it's just kind of like a fresh start for me, a clean slate for me to really apply everything that I've learned from my guilt chain project to, to this new project and, and see where that takes me, you know, and, 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 and it's nice to finally feel like I have full control over a project that I'm starting. And it's not to say that I didn't have full control over the guild chain. It's just that I didn't have the ability or the knowledge or the expertise to really, you know, do it justice at the beginning because it was just, you know, so, you know, for this new project, I definitely, it's definitely very exciting for me. Um, It's, it's called bear, bear and friends. And, you know, it's already on Spotify and everywhere else. And it's, it's basically all independent releases, but, it basically gets me, gives me an outlet to release music that yeah. I don't really need to take too seriously. It's very playful. The art's very playful. The music's very playful. Um, the music's very electronic. Um, and, you know, it, it's just kind of like, it kind of brings me back to my roots of why I even got into music production because, you know, obviously I want to enjoy the part of music production. And, you know, when I'm creating music, these days for Guild Chain, I'm still, I'm still loving the process. I'm still loving the music that I'm putting out. But at the same time, I feel like I'm, I'm stuck in this construct or these expectations of what my music need to sound like, because, because, you know, I, I have a fan base and, you know, there are certain expectations that come with my music, I guess, with the, with the association of my Guild Chain project. And maybe that's all in my head. Maybe it doesn't really matter that much, but with this side project, I could just freely just, you know, really just do anything I want, whether it's like, I don't need to care if it's like super unique, super innovative. I don't need to care about all the, all the things that I usually would care about if I'm creating for my main project. And that's been really, you know, that's been really nice, really refreshing for me.
0: I love that. And I think just going back to the idea you said earlier, it's helping you get back to your roots about what drew you into this in the first place outside of the financial job aspect. So props to you for investing the time and kind of taking a risk with this. Thank you. Yeah. So I feel like I have to ask, you said that you can approach this project in a different way that you did your Gilching project, knowing what you know now. So what were some of those things that you're like, hey, I didn't do this the way
1: that I wanted to with the Gilchain project, but I'm going to do it right here? Well, one of the main things I think um, would just be having a consistent uh, brand or image. And when I say that, I, I mean like, you know, in a very general overall aspect. And that includes, you know, artwork, your cover art, that includes, you know, logo, you know, if you want to have a logo, that includes, the music that you're putting out, you know, having a consistent quality, uh, maybe not like yeah. style. Like I'm not, I'm not really going to get into the creative style of the music, but at least having the consistency, having the right, uh, the same quality and, and consistency. Um, and that's definitely something that I lacked with my very very early releases. And you know, like I said previously, too, I, I ended up putting out a lot of tracks with labels that. I didn't really, you know, there were like smaller labels and I don't think they, they really knew what they were doing either. And they ended up putting some sp- songs on Spotify and, you know, it's definitely not my best work. And I felt like that definitely, you know, diluted some of my, I don't know, momentum as well on on Spotify. And yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I just didn't really want, it. that's just something that I've always been not too happy with, you know now looking back on my guilt chain project. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with my new project to just really have a very consistent brand and message with my music. I think that's crucial. And I think it's, I don't know, it just comes with the
0: experience and you've been able to see what works for other people in the industry and also what you could have done better with your guilt chain project. And I'm sure, Yeah, I mean, a lot of that came from you just saying, hey, this is what's working for other people. They've got a consistent brand, consistent image, consistent sound, and that's helping them grow to a better extent. And also by self-releasing and starting this from scratch, you've got, con- you've got more control over the narrative for this as well. Exactly. Yeah. So we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. I'm sure a lot of them are familiar with you from your music, then also your samples. So, what advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out with music production to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music?
1: Well, you know, I'll, I'll give I'll give a few advice here. Um, but for, for for starters, on a more technical aspect, you know, I would say that one thing that really made a huge difference for me to really understand is that uh, less is always more uh, when you're when you're making music uh, yeah. when you're mixing music. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Basically, you know, when I first started, I, I would listen to a song, you know, like seven lines and I would hear their songs and their, and the way it's mixed. And I, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, that there must be, there must be like 10 different layers there, you know, yeah. 10 different sounds, uh, for them to achieve that sound. But, you know, and I would go into my, my own projects and I'll w- I try to recreate that sound and it would just end up becoming a huge mess, you know, it's super muddy, everything's fighting for space. Um and it's it's only when I started wrapping my head around the idea that less is less is more, we, it, it, that's when it was kind of like a turning point for my mixes where it started sounding better, you know. Yeah. Um and I think that's very important for a lot of producers who are starting out to understand is that you don't you don't need all these layers for your for your sound to sound full, you know, if you have fewer sounds, each sound has its space, It has more room to shine, more room to breathe. And, you know, ultimately it'll, it'll make your mix sound fuller just by having fewer sounds. Yeah. So I feel like that's definitely something very important. Um, as for workflow and uh, on, on a more creative aspect, you know, I think one thing that helped me when I first started out was, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, copying and replicating other people's style mm. and tracks And, you know, I think a lot of people would look down on that or maybe think that that's not very cool. Um, But I'm not saying like you have to like just copy and release the track, you know, I'm just saying from, from more like a learning aspect, that's kind of how I started getting better. Obviously I had to look at a lot of tutorials on how to do things, you know, so once you get over that technical aspect, that technical barrier, you know, like when I started to be more creative. That's, that's what I kind of did. I I would listen to like, maybe like, um, like, a like a flume track and I would just, I would just try to replicate that, that track, you know, I would, I would replicate the saws as, as best as I can. And, you know, in that process, you know, I would just think to myself, like, how could I be doing this different? How could I make this my own? Um, and that definitely helped me a lot in making my own unique sound and Making that sound my own—that was a great way, for, yeah. great way to learn for me. And I guess lastly, on like a more business aspect of your music, uh, I would say one thing that I learned the hard way was that I didn't really diversify my fan base um, when I when I started picking up momentum. It was back in the day when SoundCloud was still, you know very much alive, very much vibrant. And it was, uh, most of my fan base was on Spotify, sorry, was on SoundCloud and I never really given it. I didn't back then. I didn't give it, give it much thought to diversify my fan base. I thought, you know, SoundCloud was going to be there forever. And that's where I'm going to, you know, interact with most of my fan base. You know, that's where I'm going to make most of my streaming revenue. Um, but, Obviously, that's not the case these days, you know. And you know, if I ha- if I could go back in time and tell myself back then, I would just tell myself to you know work on other platforms. You know, just understand that you shouldn't keep all your eggs in one basket. You should need, you need to diversify to to be a little more successful in the future.
0: I love that. That is all such fantastic advice for anyone listening not driving their car. Hopefully, you took some notes on that. <laughs> so to um, wrap things up what's going to be coming up for you in the next zero to six
1: months? Well, in the next six months, I have a lot of releases planned. You know, I have two more releases planned with, uh, Trap Nation's uh, label Lowly and also have another, a few more releases planned with some other labels as well as Proximity as well uh, some collabs going on there. I'm also trying to release an EP with, uh, Chemo Frankel, that the the singer, the vocalist, that the songwriter that yeah. I worked on story with. Um, I'm I'm trying to release an EP with him this this year as well. So lots of exciting stuff, um, and also you know, trying to make an album for my side project as well, Bear Bear and Friends. So that's something uh, that's that's a lot of things that I'm working on. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: Sweet. Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can all find Gil Chang's music in the description of this podcast. So go give it a listen as this episode is just about over. Gil, it's been great chatting with you and appreciate you being on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me.